Well, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, as you can see, we're starting off on a good note. <laughs> um, thanks for coming in. Um, thank you for watching online. Um, I'm going to hit you guys with some announcements real quick, which is more of a recap. If you guys remember, two weeks ago, we did a barbecue here at the church outside. Um, and I just want to thank everybody who was serving um, that day and night um, from startup, from getting everything started in the morning um, to everything that was happening during and then also putting everything away. Um, just you guys were a blessing to make that happen. So I just want to thank everybody who was serving. Um, there was a lot of cool things that happened. Um, one of the highlights that I thought was just like really cool is that um, there's a um, Jaden who works downstairs um, on Sundays with the uh, two to three year old classroom. And she brought her like race car. Um, and it was out there in the parking lot. And I knew by the end of the night that I needed to get in the driver's seat. So um, that was like one of the highlights. I was like, oh, let me get. So like I hopped in through the hole, um, the hole in the window and, and it was awesome. And so then we got to push it back up to um, her place. But it was really cool um, getting to know her and her family was there. Um, and just making that connection was just like a huge highlight of the, of the night. Um, and it also was, happened to be like those type of connections that you guys made that made a highlight for you guys. So having those um, uh, conversations at the tables and meeting people um, and furthering relationships with people that you already know was a huge highlight from what I've heard in the feedback um, we've heard as a staff. So um, with that being said, some of you guys have even asked to um, have some of those conversation cards. And so we actually brought some of those out there. They're out um, in the uh, welcome table. So if you wanted to, to take that and bring that home so you can kind of replicate that, um, it's there. You can also get that um, online if you email brookviewchurchbriar um, at gmail.com. We can send you that virtually. But Jen's out of town for the next week, so you might not get those for until next Sunday, but those will be sent out. Um, but there's also paper copies in the lobby. So um, again, thank you so much um, for that barbecue and for attending and for being there and supporting it. It was a great time. The other thing that I have for you is your online communication card. Fill those out. Um, we love hearing from you. Um, and so fill those out and we'll hear from you. That's, that's what I got. That's all I got. Um, hopefully I don't fall. This, we can turn the mic off now, I'm good. Let me, let me pass this to Jason, let me pass this to Jason. you guys. Good morning. Was that a little hot? Was it coming in hot? Let's get it fired up. Um, because after a four-week break from preaching, which I have not had much of over the years, like a four-week break, you guys, I am fired up to be back. Good. Thank you. That was polite. It has the, there has been a lot of really great stuff over the last four weeks. Um, just taking you back on the journey. Four weeks ago, Jen, Jen talked beautifully about experiencing community around a table. And so if you missed that one, you, sh you should definitely go back and listen to it. It was so good. 
Then the following week, we had Bryce with us, and Bryce is always awesome. Bryce has become like a part of the family at Brookview. Um, and then we had the all-church barbecue. Like, what a great night. As Trevor said, there were so many different connections, and so many people brought people, and I, I got to know some people for the first time. It was really great. And then last week, Annie came. How many of you were here for that? Is, isn't she great? Oh, my gosh, she's like a ball of fire. I love that lady. So last weekend, um, we weren't here because our family was at the Gorge to see who? The Lumineers. How many of you are Lumineers fans, by the way? Are you kidding me? I'm leaving this church. Okay, there's just, a, for, for those of you online, there's four people in the room that raised their hand. Uh, you, you want me to sing something? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want that. <laughs> so Jen and Kate and, and Brooke and I, um, we went last week to the Gorge, and it was Brooke's birthday present. Her, her birthday was back in February, so she had to wait a while for this thing. But the Lumineers are her absolute favorite band in the world, which I don't think is typical for high school freshmen. Uh, but that setting over there for that band, kind of that folky music, the gorgeous is, how many of you have ever been to the gorge? Okay, we're starting to be a little bit cooler as a church. Uh, it is, it's amazing. And, um, you know, like if you're there at night with the sunset and the, it, it's, so when we got there, Jen and Kate uh, had to use the restroom and they got drinks for everybody. And so Brooke and I sat down and um, the opener was on a guy named Gregory Allen Isakov. How many of you are huge Gregory Allen Isakov fans? We have one, Trevor. Dude, you are so cool. Uh, for the rest of you, I, I didn't really know him either. Um, but he and his band were just like, they were ridiculous. Just think of like Mumford and Sons, for those of you that knows that kind of music with that kind of instrumentation was so good. So Brooke and I are sitting there and, and we're just grooving and just taking in the beauty of just the scenery and the sunset and the whole thing. So after a few minutes, Brooke looks up at me and she says, Dad, Somehow, heaven is going to be better than this. <laughs> so it was, like, it, it was like Brooklyn's dream night. And to be able to experience that with her, it was just her dream. Uh, now, for me, during my four-week four week preaching break here, I had kind of my own dream come true. Does anybody know what it was? Yes, they're the Mariners. <laughs> you guys, the Mariners freaking caught fire. Uh, they are back in the playoff hunt. And so if you were doubting, please know this. Miracles can happen. <laughs> and, um, and that's all I got for today. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> uh, no, I, let's actually, let's open in prayer. Um, I'm so excited about where we're going the rest of the summer. So let me just launch into it and just say, God, I pray that you would, you would meet us here this morning. We're coming in with all kinds of different things, different experiences, different things we're excited about, afraid of, nervous about, things that we're frustrated about, things that we're hurt by. Um, but this morning, more than anything else, God, I, I know that what we need is to encounter you. And so I, I pray that you would breathe life into us by your Holy Spirit, that we would encounter you this morning and more and more throughout this week and the rest of this summer. God, would you move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. In a biography constructed from his old journals and letters, Martin Luther 
uh, King Jr. tells a story of a night when a brick was thrown through the window of his home and a bomb threat was made against his family. On that particular night, he stayed up all night talking to God, just saying, God, this is, this is too much. I, I, I feel like I can endure anything they throw at me, but, but not my children, not my wife. Like, let them come after me, sure, but not where my babies sleep. If you are going with me, God, then I'll go. But I need to know that this whole thing is you, Lord. I need to hear from you again tonight, right here in the thick of this mess, to know that it's you that I'm walking with. And as the sun rose on an all-nighter of, of heart-rending prayer, he knew that God was leading, and so he kept on going. And that night, says Dr. King, that night was the defining moment of the civil rights movement. So when you think about that, he says this was the defining moment. So not the, not the bus boycott, not the Birmingham jail, not even the I have a dream speech. According to Dr. King, the defining moment was that night alone in prayer. And that is something like what Exodus 33 is. It's another liberation journey, and it's another leader having that same kind of like crisis experience. And so it is Moses crying out to God in prayer. And this prayer becomes the defining moment of that entire liberation journey. So it's not really the Red Sea, it's, it, it, it's not the, the ten plagues, it's not the pillar of fire or the, the manna or the water from a rock. It's just this, this prayer in Exodus 33. Moses says to God, you, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And Moses is ranting in response to a very strange invitation from God. They were on a journey from Egyptian slavery into freedom a place that God had set apart for them, a place of, of peace and rest. But despite the saving miracles that they had witnessed from God again and again, the people of Israel were quick to turn from God in all kinds of ways. And so right before this prayer, right before this crisis moment was the famous golden calf fiasco. So God essentially says to Israel, you know what? I can't do this with you anymore. I can't take you on this journey, but to honor my word, I will send an angel with you to the promised land. I will make sure you get there. I will give you everything you've wanted, but I won't go with you. You will have all of my blessings, but not my presence. Okay, now imagine your life for a second. What if God made you that same deal? Like, what would you say to God? I'll let your life turn out exactly like you want. All of your preferred circumstances, all of them. But you won't have me. You will get everything you dream for your future. But I won't be with you in that future. Would you take that deal? Behind one door, you've, you've got life on your terms, guaranteed, but without God. 
Behind the other door, a life of total mystery, a mixed bag, to be sure. There'd be blessing and, and disappointment and joy and suffering. But it is a life bathed in the presence of God. If God made you that deal, which door are you walking through? Honestly. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. So Moses picks door number two. And then he says to God, he says to God, Now, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So Moses wants glory, but he gets goodness. God, show me your glory. God says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. Moses wants glory, but he gets goodness. And there, there comes a point in the life of every mature follower of Jesus where we find ourselves exactly here. We are convinced that we want glory, but we are given goodness instead. Moses wants glory, but he gets goodness. Okay, hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. Today, we're, we're starting this series that's going to take us through the rest of the summer. It's called Renewed Identity. And if I could sum it up in one sentence, I would, I would say this. There is unfathomable freedom and joy available to us if we can see God as he actually is and see ourselves in light of how he sees us. So to kick this series off, um, we're going to take a look at a very strange book in the Bible. It's called The Song of Songs. Woo. <laughs> Somebody's already starting to sweat. <laughs> Historically, it's also known as The Song of Solomon. And the reason we're looking at it is because when it comes to identity, this, this book is like no other. Song of Songs is a biblical love story written in the form of poetry. Now, today, right, in the world, today, it's mainly known as that pornographic scandal that someone forgot to edit out of the Bible, <laughs> right? And that is kind of, that's like both accurate and tragic. It's accurate because it is undoubtedly steeped in erotic imagery, but it's tragic because that imagery reveals something beautiful, and it does so in a very unique and personal way. So there are a few scholars out there that believe the Song of Songs is, is just a love story. That, there's, that it's nothing more than a love story between a man and a woman and that it celebrates erotic love, which it does. But that's it. That's, that's all there is to it. That most of the scholars, the scholarly consensus, the historical view of the Christian church dating all the way back throughout uh, Jewish history is that yes, the book celebrates romantic erotic love, but also... Okay, also, it is a picture of God's loving pursuit of his people. It's a picture of God's passion for you and for me. So in the poem, you and I are represented by the woman, the bride. And Jesus, or God himself, is represented by the pursuer or the groom. Um, Eugene Peterson, who, who did the message translation, he explains it this way. He says, the only context in which the Song of Songs is found is the canon of Holy Scripture, which means it has to do with God. The erotic content must be read in the theological context. The ancients did not read the song devotionally 
because they were embarrassed by its sexuality, but because they understood sexuality in sacramental ways. Human love took its color from divine love. So while the Song of Songs is a celebration of human erotic love, and like, let's not just skim over that, let's not miss that, God is not against erotic love. It was his idea, guys. Like, he made it up. He dreamed it up. And, 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 and in the right context, it, it can lead to the deepest of human intimacy. And this is why we're also meant to see the Song of Songs as a picture, a metaphor for God's great desire and longing for us. It's a picture of how God longs for and pursues us. Now, we don't have time this morning to cover like all eight chapters of this book, but let me, let me show you a little bit of what this looks like because I think it's breathtaking. I think it's unbelievable. Here's the bride. This is chapter one. Here's the bride speaking to the groom. She says, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Dark am I, yet lovely, is unfortunately not like the ancient equivalent to I'm black and I'm beautiful. This is not an ethnic statement. It's a statement of, of defense. Like throughout history, the cultural consensus on what makes a person attractive, it has always been a moving target, right? You realize the way that our culture thinks about beauty is not the way that the rest of the world has thought about it over the years. I mean, in our culture, right, people lay in tanning beds or use lotions just to look darker because in modern Western culture, at least for Caucasians, dark, darkened skin is often seen as exotic and attractive. Or today, many people count calories and just bang out miles on cardio equipment because thin is in, right? You, you, what you want is a thin and yet muscular frame, okay? But the Israelite definition of, of attractive was very different. It's more like the, the Japanese geisha who hides her skin from the sun because milky, white, fair skin is, was thought of as objectively attractive. Or maybe a little more like the ancient European vision of female beauty, which was really more plump and round than skinny and muscular. And that's because in much of the ancient world, beauty was tied to class. The darkest people were day laborers forced to work out in the sun, forced to wear calluses into their hands and into their knees. And to be skinny and muscular meant that you did, you did labor, you did physical work, and you, lacked a, 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 and you lacked access to the food on the tables of the rich. So the woman in songs describes herself as dark like the tents of Kedar. And that's a reference to the Arabic shelters made from tanned animal hides. They had to be like thick enough and tough enough to withstand all the stuff that goes on in the desert, right? The wind and the sun and the sand during sandstorms. And they would get worn into this very uh, rough, sandpapery type texture. This is her description of her own skin. This is her description of herself. Do you see the imagery? Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. Do you know what this feels like? Do you ever feel something like this toward God? Like maybe you come to church wanting to be near God generally, but maybe not necessarily seen by God in particular. 
You, you want to be around those or among those that are pursuing God, but deep down, you're kind of hoping that he doesn't lock eyes with you. Because recently, you're ashamed of something that's been going on. Maybe you've, you've been looking at stuff that you swore you would stop looking at. Or you've been consuming stuff you swore that you would stop consuming. Or you yelled at your kids when you swore you'd stop doing that. Don't look at me because I'm dark. Or you insisted you'd get going on that thing that you know you need to do, that you would nap less and watch less Netflix and get it going, but you haven't. Why are you wasting so much time? You don't know. God, don't look at me because I'm dark. Or maybe you feel like you're in the grip of that pattern that through your life has just consistently owned you. And, and every time you string together enough days to feel like, you know what, it might stick this time. I, I might really be free. Then you fall flat on your face again. And with each fall, you're losing the will to get back up again. Or maybe you made a big mistake and you, didn't, like, you, you would have never dreamed that you were even capable of something like that. But, but something came over you and, and you didn't really even know you had it in you. And now you have to live with the reality of this, this thing that you've done. Or maybe it wasn't that you did something. It was that something was done to you. Somebody hurt you or somebody violated you. And it doesn't really even matter that you're the victim because the effect is the same. You feel dirty. You feel unworthy. Don't look at me because I'm dark. See, every one of those stories or perceptions are distortions. They're distortions about God that come not from your Father in heaven, but from the Father of lies. But all of those, every last one of them, they're real. And they are real deceptions that we, that we carry. They are real lies that we believe. And we don't just like believe them in our minds. We feel them in our emotions. We carry them in our bodies and we live out of them with our actions. And this is why confronting these lies matters so much. She goes on. She says, My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Don't look at me, I'm dark. That's part one. And there's a story of how I got this way. That's part two. My skin is dark because they made me work out in the vineyard. They made me bake beneath the sun. They made me sweat in the heat and wear calluses into my hands. See, everybody who's got a part one also has a part two. Here's how I got myself into this. Here's the story that explains my current condition. And intuitively, we, we, we just know that there is a backstory behind every darkened condition, right? We know that there's a dark childhood behind that person's standing trial or a dark history of being neglected for that person who's now an absent parent or a history of being abused by that person that is selling their body. But do I see the backstory that I bring to God? Because my own self-storytelling often reveals the deceptions that I carry about the God that I'm relating to. So think about you. What's, what's your backstory? What is the story that you just keep bringing to God? Maybe it's a, a tragedy of some kind. Maybe a loss. Maybe, maybe an abuse. 
Maybe you were treated unfairly. Maybe you were neglected. Maybe you made a whole series of horrible decisions and it feels now like the consequences will never end. Don't look at me, God, because I'm dark. And God, here's the story of how I got this way. The woman continues. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now this sounds as if she's starting to turn the corner and feel a little better about herself, right? But there's something happening here in the Hebrew that's still very self-deprecating. It's, it's really more like, I'm only a rose of Sharon. Like, I, I might be a flower, but I'm actually a flower from a disgusting marshland. It's, it's easier to kind of see this in a translation like the message. Listen, listen to this. Here's how Eugene Peterson translate, translates it. I'm just a wildflower picked from the plains of Sharon, a lotus blossom from the valley pools. But the voice of the pursuer, the groom, now breaks in. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. We all have parts of ourselves that we don't want God to see. Don't look at me. I'm dark. And then we have a backstory. But God, here's how I got this way. Here's what happened to me that explains what you're looking at when you see me. But the pursuer, the groom, Jesus, sees you there. He sees your beauty and your flaws. And he interrupts your self-storytelling by saying, you are a lily among thorns. The Song of Songs is this breathtaking poetry about the deepest kind of love. It's a work of art designed to break through the most deeply held misconceptions about God and how he sees us. Re remember the, the uh, attack of the evil one is usually indirect. Uh, it begins as a subtle attack on our trust, not necessarily our behavior, because our behavior emerges from our trust, what we trust and what we don't trust. I mean, when you think about it, the serpent never tells Eve to eat the fruit. Instead, he subtly chips away at her trust in the Father. He demotes God to some good but lesser version of the God that he's revealed himself to be. It's very subtle. And suddenly, the adoring Father in Eve's eyes, at least for a moment, becomes something else. He becomes the, the boss you report to for your next kingdom assignment right? Or the personal trainer that you go to see to get you whipped into spiritual shape. Or the earthly father who, who, had, uh, who found a way after every like piano recital or, or little league game to focus on the one thing that you could have done better. Or maybe the earthly father who left you behind, the father who was more interested in something else or living somewhere else than he was watching you grow up. Song of Songs is a story intended to replace those deceptions with a renewed identity of both who God is and who you are in his eyes. And the message is obvious. Despite your flaws, he is utterly in love with you. All through the Bible, this metaphor just keeps coming up. God is pictured as a groom in love with his bride. This is a metaphorical thread that's woven all through. The Bible is a love story, and God's method of redemption is renewing the vows with you as many times as it takes until they finally stick somewhere deep within you. 
Many of us would say that, like, yeah, I know. I mean, like, God is love. But the challenging leap Jesus asks us to make is to believe that God is in love with you and with me. Like, in spite of our inadequacies, he pursues us. The, the spiritual life, I think, is so often for us, it can feel like, especially in the beginning, that, okay, so this is all about me pursuing God. I mean, when people, uh, when people come to Jesus, they'll often say, I found God. As if God was hiding that whole time. I mean, in reality, who's doing that? Is it God hiding or are we the ones doing the hiding? Who's doing the seeking? Who's doing the hiding? Because this is completely backwards. The spiritual life, it begins and it grows only because he is, he is the one that's in pursuit of me. My pursuit of God pales in comparison to his passionate, tenacious, and loving pursuit of me. The simple message of the Song of Songs and really the whole Bible is this. Jesus is the seeker, not the sought. And I find this to be a very freeing idea because it means that the whole thing doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on you. If you're the seeker, then the whole journey depends on you. It depends on your consistency. It depends on your tenacity. It depends on your grit and, and your love and your ability to grow and to change and to become. If you are the seeker, then God is passive, waiting on you. But if Jesus is the seeker, then no matter how many times you get lost, no matter how many times you lose the plot or the story of Scripture, or you become a stranger, no matter how many times you just get tired and winded and lose the ability to get up and keep going, the point is, he just keeps coming after you. His love is stronger than our love. And he is stronger than our weakness. And he's stronger than my failure or my past. He's stronger than my great intentions and then my, my really weak follow-through. I'm never the pursuer. It's always him. And here's how, here's how John, uh, John said this. He said, we, we love because he first loved us. In chapter four of the Song of Songs, we, we see like the unbridled love of the pursuer. And this is the groom just speaking his vision over the bride. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. A story that begins with the voice of a woman. So a stand-in for you and for me saying, don't look at me. I know what I look like, but but I've got a reason for looking this way. What they did to me, this is how I ended up this way. But that story gets interrupted with another voice, the voice of the groom of Jesus to you and to me. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Now, it's interesting because there's no mention of a change to the woman's appearance. There's no evidence that she somehow became more beautiful. This is not a makeover story. This is a story of what you call flaws, I call beautiful. It's as if God is saying, even your blemishes are beautiful to me. How can that be? How does that work? Well, let me see if I can paint a, a little picture of this and how this works. Um, so my oldest daughter, Kate, played basketball at George Fox University. Um, and she just graduated with her master's in teaching, and now she's on the hunt for a high school math job in the area. If you're hiring math, math teachers, come talk to me, and I will connect you with one of the world's best math teachers. 
But she went in, into college with, with uh, really high hopes for her basketball career. I mean, this was a really big deal to her. And she, and she worked harder than you can imagine. Like, she worked hard in season. She worked hard out of season. Just lifting and training and always working, always getting better. But halfway through her playing career uh, there, there was a coaching change. And it was not a good change for Kate. Um, and she kind of thought... Well, if I work hard enough, I can get the new coach to notice me. If I play well enough, I can, I can earn my way into more playing time. Surely, he has to see that, that I can play. And if I just keep getting better and just keep getting better and just keep getting better, eventually, I'm going to get some opportunities. And you guys, I know I'm her dad. And I know I am insanely biased. But she deserved those opportunities. She did, and they never came. Her uh, teammates, they voted her team captain both of her last team, two years. In fact, she was the top vote-getter of anybody on the team for captain by the team itself. Like, clearly, her teammates believed in her in a as a leader, but, but also as a player, and for some reason, that confidence never transferred to the guy who actually made decisions about playing time. And yet, she showed up every day, and she worked her butt off in practice, and she challenged, and she encouraged her teammates. Teammates, by the way, that were taking her playing time. And she cheered them on from the bench, game after game, week after week, year after year, season after season. And to make it worse, at, at the beginning of this past season, she tore her ACL. Um, but because... She really believed that this, this last year would be the year that she would finally get opportunities to play. She wore this monstrous knee brace on her leg that acted as her ACL, and she played through it. But to her shock, even her final season as team captain, playing on a torn ACL, she played very little. Now, can I just say, <clears throat> if I was the coach, Okay, and, and, I, and I was not planning to ever play one of my players, and then she tore her ACL and tried to play through it, I would call her into my office and I would explain to her, don't put your knee at risk every day in practice by going hard because I, I don't really ever have plans of you being on the court. But that's not what he did. He sort of acted like she was always on the verge of getting playing time, even, with, even though she's playing on a torn ACL. It was crazy. And, and I, to be honest with you, I can't imagine how she dealt with that. Showing up to practice day after day, giving 100% effort, like even in the conditioning drills, just giving everything that she had, and then cheering for her teammates that were taking her spot. I mean, that, that takes... That takes a, a kind of emotional resilience that I, I don't have it, honestly. I'm like, wow. I mean, I just, I'm like, you are something else. And her grit and character were just so impressive to me. So about a month ago, as many of you know, she, she finally got her ACL surgery. And, and so now she's got several gnarly scars on her, around her knee area. And she's, she's always joking around. She's like, well, I guess I'll never be a leg model. But here's, here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine that, that she somehow landed a gig as a, as a leg model. Um, here's what would happen. The photographer would take the pictures, and then they, here's what they would do. 
they would Photoshop out the scars. Yes? Because for a photographer who doesn't know her and a magazine publisher or whoever's publishing these things, the scars are very unattractive. Like they would ruin the photo. Now, for me, when I look at those scars, I see something else. Because I love her, because I believe in her, because I know her story, I know how she got those scars and what they signify. See, to me, those scars are paramount to who she is. She would not be who she is. She would not be what she is without them. They are a reflection of all that she, that she overcame to do beautiful things. Those scars are especially attractive to me, actually. But that's the difference between some random photographer and a man that loves a young lady with all his heart. So how can God say, what you call flaws, I call beautiful? Well, it's because your flaws are part of your story. And there is one so in love with you that he sees and knows it all. He knows the loss you endured. He knows the abuse that was inflicted on you. He knows the way that you, you coped with stuff by engaging in destructive behaviors, the way that you were treated unfairly, because all of those things have left scars. But there is one that is so in love with you that all of this doesn't deter him at all. He's not a, a hired photographer that only sees scars. He is completely in love with you. And those scars are very much a part of you. And he's so in love that even your scars are beautiful to him. So what are the scars that you feel like makes God turn away from you? What if, what if you're projecting, actually, you're projecting all kinds of stuff onto God? What if, what if those deceptions are what he's actually trying to break through. Now, Eugene Peterson says it this way. We never know how good we can look, how delightful we can feel, or how strong we can be until we hear ourselves addressed in love by God. In the Song of Songs, it's expressed like this. The woman finally says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. And that, that brings me back to where we started. Because that is what Moses discovered behind the rock that day. That he wasn't just useful to God, that he actually was the beloved of God. Now God, show me your glory. Moses wants glory, but he gets goodness. So what's the difference? Well, in, in Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod which means weight or greatness or power or authority. Now, remember, this is Moses who already saw God do some crazy stuff, wouldn't you say? I mean, this is Moses who watched God part the Red Sea and all of his people cross from slavery to freedom on dry ground. This is Moses who saw God in a pillar of fire that literally guided the nation where he wanted them to go. This is Moses who ate heavenly cornflakes for breakfast and drank from rocks when he was thirsty. Moses was no stranger to the glory of God, and yet he says, I want more, God. Now, God, give me more. Show me your glory. And the Lord, and the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. 
Goodness is the, the Hebrew word tov, and it means best things or blessing or prosperity or beauty or goodness or joy. And God explains his goodness to Moses, kind of unpacks it this way. He says, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, I'm going to give you my goodness now. And goodness is defined as mercy plus compassion. I'm giving you my mercy, God says, not because of you, but more in spite of you. You have not earned it or accrued enough merit to somehow deserve it, but it is a free gift because, of, because my love always has and always will, be, will outpace what you deserve. So if you try to do the math, this is an equation that we'll never solve. So I'm inviting you to just take me at my word. You are utterly beautiful to me. I am captivated by you. But it's not just mercy, there's also compassion. And the, the biblical word picture uh, for compassion is, is how a, a, a mother looks at her newborn child, which is awesome. And to me, it's, it's kind of the mystery of, of life. It's, it's like the mystery of love at its apex. When you think about, think about a mother with, a, with her newborn in the delivery room or in the back of the van or wherever it happens to be. <laughs> Think of what she's thinking, right? It's like, this little creature has just put me through nine months of hell. And today, driven me through the most excruciating pain a human being can endure. And yet, immediately at first glance, a kind of love surges through my body for this baby that is incomparable for any other human experience. This is the biblical word picture for compassion. It is a, a doting, adoring, self-sacrificing, protecting, give anything that you need to you kind of love. This is compassion. And this is what Moses experienced that day. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. There, there comes a time in the life of every follower of Jesus where we ask for God's glory, but we get his goodness. Like we want miracles, we, we want a change of circumstances, we want God's glory, but what we get is God's goodness. And I, I will tell you that, that this has been so much of my experience over the last 20 years. Like time after time, I have longed for God's glory and then been given his goodness. Um, this has been true with the church and, um, and it's very much been true with my kids. Um, some of you know this, many of you don't. When, when Jen and I were dreaming of starting Brookview, we were up in Bellingham, and we saw crazy stuff. I mean, just crazy. Uh, when we met, we were both attending churches that were just exploding. Uh, mine had gone from about 100 to about 1,000 in just a few years. And uh, hers had grown from about 150 to about 800 also in just a few years. And so when we got engaged, uh, we decided that her church would be our church. And I felt God's just leading me to a life of ministry. And so we started dreaming. We, we were in Bellingham, but we envisioned a, starting a church down in Linwood, the promised land. <laughs> but you guys, I, I want you to try to picture what it was we envisioned. Um, 
After I started attending Jen's church, I said hers was about 800. It grew from 800 to 2,400 in about five years. And we were there for all of that. Like, so in the summers, um, they would do baptisms at Lake Whatcom. And you guys, there would be like two to three to 400 people that would show up to be baptized in one day. I mean, people were coming out of addictions and, and all kinds of stuff, and God's glory was just on display everywhere that we looked. And, and we were a part of that. Like, Jen was leading worship, and she was doing ministry of all kinds, and I was preaching, and I was preaching, certain times I was preaching to enormous crowds, and God was moving like crazy. And so when we dreamed of Brookview, uh, we, or at least I, envisioned a very similar kind of thing happening. Some of you are like, you did? I did. And you're like, you're not that good. I know. <laughs> but this is what I envisioned. You guys, I figured, honestly, I figured that by our fifth birthday, our church, Brookview, would be about 1,000. Uh, by our 10th birthday, maybe we'd be, you know, a few thousand. I just sort of expected miracle upon miracle upon miracle, just hundreds and hundreds being baptized, new ministries being started right and left. Um, I'm an optimist. And some of you know this about me. And sometimes I suffer from what psychologists call idealistic distortion. <laughs> um, here's how you know. Just ask me how good the Mariners are going to be. <laughs> so the experience of Brookview was just nothing like I envisioned. It was harder and it was slower at every step. In fact, for the first 10 years or so, we were just consistently on the verge of having to close our doors. But every time something would happen and God would move and, and we would be able to carry on just a little bit longer, but we were like on life support all the time. Now, I don't want to make it sound as if there wasn't awesome stuff. We, we definitely saw God move supernaturally. We saw some people come to, we saw people come to Jesus. We saw people break free from addictions, like literally break free from addictions. We saw several marriages that were, that were right on the verge of divorce. They were headed for divorce. And then we saw God just breathe life into those couples. And some of those couples are now leaders in our church, right? And, and, and they have like beautiful families, kids. And, and so I, like I could go on and on. We saw God do stuff. We saw God's glory. But if I am being honest with you, it was nothing like what I had envisioned it would be. And I don't like, well, what did you envision? I, got, I guess I envisioned like the parting of Puget Sound <laughs> and rainbows and unicorns descending or something. I, but but what, what, what happened in those hard years was that, that I experienced God's goodness. And, and I learned that my worth is not contingent upon how successful I look to the watching world. I learned to seek God in the quiet, and he, and he met me there. I learned to serve God in the shadows a little bit more. I learned to love people more than numbers. And God's goodness just began to saturate my life, and I began to feel his pleasure with me. So a few years ago, I was, um, I was invited to a gathering in California of young lead pastors, so as you can imagine, this was a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, so our denominational leaders were wanting to hear from the young. They were wanting to know, like, hey, what, what's happening in our culture? What are you seeing? What's happening in, in the, the views or the perceptions of younger generations when it comes to following Jesus? And so I was actually asked to go to this, and they paid for me to fly and stay and all that. It was pretty cool. I was pretty honored. 
But when, when, when this thing started, there were maybe 40 of us in this room, you know, young lead pastors. And there were like three or four guys who were just utterly in love with themselves. Um, I was like, wow. They didn't listen to anybody else. They thought they had all the answers. They talked 10 times more than anyone else. They just seemed like arrogant know-it-alls to me, honestly. And so I found out later in the day that all of those guys were pastors of huge churches. Like, they all led churches of several thousand. And so, you know, I don't know. Apparently, they thought they were like big stuff. So I have, I, I've kind of reflected on that over the years, and I thought, you know, okay, let's be honest. If, if God had moved in our church the way that I asked him to, the way that I thought he would, those guys would seem meek and humble compared to the jackass that I would be. <laughs> I, I, I would be the most arrogant, prideful, jerk pastor that you've ever seen. So I look at this thing and I go, okay, I asked for God's glory. Mostly I got his goodness. And I'm glad. And you should be glad too. <laughs> And then over the years, like, my, my kids have walked through hard stuff. And Kate, she faced, you know, very different stuff than Cam, for sure. But each had their stuff, and I, I just kept asking God through those long seasons, like, God, show me your glory. You know, God, deliver them miraculously. Give them, give them victory from their stuff. And instead, for years, what I mostly got was God's goodness. His reassurance that he is utterly in love with me and that he's in love with them. And that their story, wherever they are in it, is not over. And so through the years, through the tears, through the prayers of desperation, God has just consistently given me his goodness. And I'll tell you what, there is, there is nothing like seeing your kids in pain and feeling powerless. But I've come to realize that God feels the same way about me. Like the ache that I have for my kids, it pales in comparison to his ache for me. And while he could have fixed their pain and didn't, I became more and more aware of his, that his love for me is real, that he adores me more than I could ever imagine, that despite my, my deepest flaws and failures, he desires me and he seeks me, and that regardless of the pain that I have in this life, this life is not all there is. 
I asked for glory, but mostly I got his goodness. And what I will say is many of you in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have asked God for his glory in some arena, in some way, but instead you've gotten his goodness. He didn't change your circumstances. What he did is he walked through the valley of death with you. It wasn't what you wanted. But in some ways, it, was, it really was what you needed. And I just want to address those of you that are walking through some tough stuff right now. If your vision of God's goodness hangs on him changing your situation, you might miss his love and his goodness that's on offer to you right now. Like, keep asking for his glory, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Keep asking for it. But in the meantime, do not miss out on his goodness because he is pursuing you. He is seeking you. And it might not make any sense to you, but he is utterly in love with you. Father in heaven, I thank you for your relentless, seeking, pursuing love of every one of us in this room. I thank you that the reality of me being a Christian and walking with you really isn't dependent on me. It's not me who does the seeking. It's you who does the seeking. And when I have seasons or stretches where, where it doesn't look the way that it should, it doesn't, it doesn't deter you at all. It just makes you seek me even harder. And so, God, I pray for, for any of us in this room that whatever it is we're walking through in life right now, because it's always a mixed bag, there may be blessing and there may be good, but there's also pain. It's always a mixed bag. God, I pray that you would meet us in whatever it is and that you would just affirm to us so clearly that we are your beloved, that you, you are in love with us. And I pray that you help us walk through life and respond to our circumstances living out of that knowledge. God, would you, would you, would you just speak to us? Amen.